It is good to open the word with you. We're going to be in 1 John 1 this morning. Matt started a series last week, The Signs of Life. And the first sign that John's going to explain for us as you're turning there is in what he calls walking in the light or living in the light. And we're going to unpack what that means today. But the stated goal of the book of 1 John is so that you might know where you stand with God. The stated goal of the book of 1 John is so that you might know where you stand with God. And I would argue that there's perhaps, there is no more important question for us to consider today. One day we are headed to a day where we will meet him. And how are we prepared for that last day when we will give an account for how we lived for him? You know, in Turkey, when we lived there, we lived there for about seven years. And about three or four years into it, I guess the government started recognizing how bad the speeding had gotten on the highway system. And so me as a foreigner, I didn't really know the rules and the assumed speed limit. So I would think before you put up cameras and, and issue out penalties, you would put signs up first. But I think the locals just assumed they knew the speed limit. I didn't know the speed limit. So I drove all the highways with an oppressive fear and fog. I didn't know when that judgment was coming in the mail. And these were expensive tickets. And the book of First John is in the Bible so that you might not live with that fog and fear. The book of 1 John is intended to impart confidence so that we can, can ride the road of life and be confident in God's favor. And the signs of life are there so that you might know how you're doing, so that you might track along with the last day, so that the last day doesn't feel like a pop quiz. You know how a, a pop quiz always would unsettle you as a student? God does not want the last day to be a pop quiz in our lives. He wants us to know where we stand with him before we get there. And that changes everything about how we live now. One oddity about our kids, we have four kids, is one of the things that they grew up just accustomed to was the, the airport security lines. And so they feel at home in an airport. And so I can remember one time when Owen, we went to our, our uh, in our city, we had an airport and we went to the airport to fly out that day. And as he walked up to the, the security area, right before he got to our gate, he, you know, he knows what to do. He waits his turn, he puts his bag on the belt, and then he goes through the little door frame thing and, and it beeps this time. And I've got my eye on four kids and all my stuff. And so I'm keeping an eye on him. And the guy assumes he doesn't know Turkish, and so he motions over for him to come so he can pat him down. So the guy with the white gloves on, you know, he, pat, he comes over and he, he goes like this, motioning for Owen what he wanted him to do. Well, Owen thought that meant hug. <laughs> and so Owen just gives him a bear hug like the dude's a family member, and he just yells out to, the, to his coworkers, the kid hugged me, he's hugging me, he's hugging me. And, and finally, Owen realized what he was doing, and, but he got through security fine. Um, but it just made me rethink, like, the whole TSA system. What if, like, in my mind, TSA workers were, changed, were trained by Chick-fil-A employees? It's like, whoa, collision of two worlds, right? But think about how that would change things if we saw embrace at the end of the scanner of our lives. Think about if the end goal is embraced, then we would throw everything up on the, on the exposing line of God's word and just be ready for him to take out anything that would threaten 
that embrace. We would not fear the embrace. And that goal changes everything now. And God's stated goal in giving you the book of 1 John is so that your life would lead to one big, warm embrace with him in Jesus Christ. There's no need to fear exposure when embrace is the goal. And I think A.W. Tozer summarizes how we should approach this book in a sermon he wrote called Root of the Righteous. And this is what he said. It'll be up on the screen. What we need very badly these days is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God as completely now as they know they must do at the last day. For each of us, the time is surely coming when we shall have nothing but God. Health and wealth and friends and hiding places will all be swept away and we shall have only God. To the man of pseudo-faith or fake faith, that is a terrifying thought. But to real faith, it is one of the most comforting thoughts the heart can entertain. It would be a tragedy indeed to come to the place where we have no other but God and to find that we had not really been trusting God during the days of our earthly sojourn. It would be better to invite God now to remove every false trust, to disengage our hearts from all secret hiding places and to bring us out into the open where we can discover for ourselves whether or not we actually trust him. And before we read the text, I think that is completely appropriate for us just to pray that he would do that in our lives. So let's pray. Father, we invite you we plead with you we put our lives on the scanner before you lord anything that threatens that final embrace lord i pray that your powerful word this morning would have its way and get it out that you would just do an expulsive work this morning in our hearts lord we pray you would clarify where we stand with you so that we might walk in confidence of the coming embrace Lord, disengage our hearts from all the secret places that we know that you already know about. We pray Jesus would be lifted up this morning, his name above all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's read 1 John 1. And this morning, before I read, I just want, we're going to look at two facets of this text. The first facet is the life that is defined by the light. So the, the three realities that occur in the light that we're continually aware of and alerted to as we walk in the light. And then we're going to look at the three transformative dynamics that are a result of walking in the light. So three realities that we're aware of in the light, and then three transformative and cleansing dynamics that happens as a result of being in the light. So let's read 1 John 1.1. We're going to start in 1.1 to get the context and go through 2.2. What was from the beginning, what we have heard... What we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed. And we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is where we're going to focus today. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. 
If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We make God a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So three realities that define the person's life that walks in the light. The first one is the gravity of our problem with sin. The first reality that the person in the light keeps before them at all times is the gravity of our problem with sin. This text goes back and forth between the lifestyle that exhibits darkness and the lifestyle that exhibits light. Between actually the assumptions that are made in the dark about where they stand and the activities that exhibit the light. And the best way to imagine this text is like when you go to the eye doctor and you put your little chin in that machine and he starts clicking away. And I don't know how they receive training, but I think every eye doctor has that same kind of inflection voice. One, two, three, you know, because they, they, they're trying to clarify for you what, where is your prescription? Where, when does that letter become the clearest? Now, for John, darkness and light are very clear, and he wants us to see them. So he goes back and forth. Darkness, light. Darkness, light. Truth, lies. Truth, lies. And I think this is really, really helpful because the darkness likes to hide. All of these verses that relate to darkness have some reference to the word deceit. In them. Darkness avoids the light. And the side-by-side contrast helped clarify who's in the light. Verse 6, people in the dark lie about how they stand with God. Verse 8, they deceive themselves. Verse 10, they lie about God and His nature. To them, darkness feels like light. It's dodgy. The darkness jukes us. It, it, it stays out of our realm of awareness. And in these three Verses, John clarifies three common versions of darkness. Verse 6, and they all have to do with this idea of sin. After summarizing the message of how God is light, he clicks over to the dark side in in verse 6. Read that with me. If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, if we say we know him, we're on good terms with him, we are on the inside, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. This is the darkness of a religious hypocrite whose lifestyle undermines his claim to know the God that he professes to know. Knowing God means your words will match your lifestyle. And this person thinks they are safe in their religious claim to know God, but their lifestyle actually denies their profession. And in our culture, in the buckle of the Bible belt, this is particularly prevalent. So they bypass the scanner under the illusion of safety. Because their name might be on a church roll somewhere. Because they do good deeds in their everyday life. But those things don't necessarily equate to saving faith. Those actions could just be religious cover-up for a life that's actually in the dark. Now he clicks over to the light in verse 7 and then back to the darkness in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. 
Now, this is a version of darkness that minimizes our problem. It sees a problem. It says sin exists, but it's out there, not in here. It looks at sin and says, nope, not my problem. It's always, it's not owning up to the personal implications of being a sinner. And the problem is that John identifies is that by reinforcing this narrative in his own head, his or her own head, he's pulling the rug out from underneath him. He's, he's deceiving himself. She's deceiving herself if you believe that sin is only a problem out there and not inside of us all. Now he clicks over to the light in verse 9 and he's going to go back to the dark in verse 10. And look in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if verse 8 was in denial about the personal implications of sin in the world, verse 10 is in denial that this person has ever engaged, personally engaged in sin. So darkness has shaped this person's selective memory. They have rose-colored view of their history and their own story. And they look at their record of holiness and they say, yep, A, A+. But this is lying about the very nature of God who says there is no one righteous, no, not even one. And John doesn't mince words. The darkness is so deep that not only have they forgotten parts of their own story, they've actually become unhinged from ultimate reality. And they're saying that God is a liar. God's word has no room in the heart of someone who has such an inflated view of themselves. So the truth and the word is not in them. So if we don't see sin clearly and own it personally, we are in the dark. That's what John is saying. Paul Tripp says that we are masterful self-swindlers. Not only does sin wear a costume, but we are professional blame shifters. And we learned it from Adam, and we've been getting better and better at it all the time. Look at this conversation between a dad and a son. The son had just been accused of kicking his brother because he lost, or his brother turned off a Nintendo game. So overhear this conversation. Dad, dad pulls the son that's accused of kicking downstairs and says, tell me what happened. So the son says, speaking of his brother, he turned the Nintendo game off right before I was about to win. In a, in a little different tone. So I kicked him. Dad, why'd you kick your brother? Because he turned the game off. We repeated that. Oh, we. I just, I just signified who's the guilty party. <laughs> Keep that between us. Repeat that three times. <laughs> because he turned the game off. Because he turned the game off. Now the son's starting to get frustrated. I don't understand, Dad. Dad says, so your brother turned the game off, picked up your leg, and made it kick himself. Son, nope. Dad, okay, so why'd you kick you? You kick your brother. Why'd you do that? Because I was mad he turned the game off. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Why were you mad? Because he turned the game off. Back to square one, right? Hmm, so he reached in your heart and flipped the anger switch after turning the game off. So I'm going to ask you again, why were you mad? Hmm, because I wanted to win. Aha, we finally got there. You kicked him because you were angry. You were angry because you put winning over your brother in the place of God. So you hurt your brother. Now, do you see how quickly we make our problems other people's problems? Sin doesn't just say, here I am, but it cloaks itself in the darkest crevices of our hearts and eludes our identifications. We so easily pass the blame. We are professional self swindlers. And in 1 John, these people do not feel like they're in the dark. It feels like light to them. Darkness or darkness in this version is confidence boosting, not despair inducing. 
And that's why we need to put our lives under the scanner of God's word. The Bible is crystal clear on sin. And to walk in the light means we are alert to this reality. Outside of Christ, we sin because we are sinners. Outside of Christ, we sin by nature and by choice. And this is a big problem for all of us. We cannot fix this on our own. A life in the light sees sin for the problem that it is. The personal problem that it is. People in the darkness suppress this knowledge. How do they suppress it? By covering it with religious routine or confidence. By minimizing it or by glossing over it in their own story. Mark Dever helps us see the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian in this quote I heard at a 2009 conference that I went to. He says that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian on this subject is when a Christian is convicted of sin, he sides with his sin. Sorry, when a non-Christian is convicted of sin, he sides with his sin. When a Christian is convicted of sin, he sides with God against himself. Now, generally, every other religion in the world recognizes some version of the problem of sin. But the difference is they have to measure up to make it. They must make a case for themselves of why either sin is not that bad or they have actually been better than the sin requires the the due penalty for. So they can't side against themselves. Why? Because they themselves are their only hopes I remember talking to a Muslim man once, and I was talking about how we need Jesus, and he was like, hey, this is exactly the difference between you and us. As a Muslim, we don't need a Savior. We save ourselves. We do good, and God rewards us. And he was intellectually honest. They have to make a case for themselves because they are their only defender. The whole movement is from them toward God, but This chapter started with the whole movement from God toward us. He had to roll up his sleeves, get his hands dirty. That's how serious our problem is. We can't fix it ourselves. He had to come to fix it for us. So put your life on the scanner. We must side with God on this topic of sin. We must stand self-condemned if we are to be accepted by God in Christ. Actually, the life of confidence before God starts with no confidence before God. No fleshly confidence before God. It starts before you breathe the sigh of relief and saving faith. It always starts with a big, uh-oh. Oh my gosh, I am in over my head. That's how it starts. And the second reality that, that we that we live and breathe in, if we're in the light, is the grandeur of God's purity. There on your outline, the grandeur of God's purity. This is the message John heard from Jesus, verse 5. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. There couldn't be a stronger way to negate a sentence. Don't even think there's a hint of darkness in him. Don't even let your brain go there. There's no being that compares to his absolute integrity and moral uprightness. He is light. There's no, absolutely no hint of darkness in him. He is perfectly pure in all of his affections, all of his actions, all of his motives, all of his emotions, all of his being is altogether worthy and holy. 
Nothing can taint his beauty. He is and forever will be worthy. The holy angels themselves, I mean, I think of the word in Hebrew for them in the Old Testament are the burning ones. And they are in God's presence continually. And they're just shouting one thing because one thing preoccupies them over and over and over and over again in the heavenly temple. And it's the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The, the earth is filled with his glory. I mean, when they appear to human beings in the Bible, human beings fall before them and want to worship them and tremble before them. And they have to stop them because they know the Holy One. They themselves are preoccupied with one thing in the temple of heaven. I don't know about you, but when I think about how impeccably holy and morally upright God is, I just want to duck and hide. I see my own darkness. I see the contrast, and I want to cower in fear. I feel like that little fly at that restaurant that I've got to get to that light. I'm headed to that light and then zap, you know, obliterated all of a sudden. That's what I feel like I'm headed toward when I think about the moral uprightness of God, when I look at my own heart. But that's not the biblical picture of God. Satan has been painting his holiness as a monstrous thing for way too long and we need to stop the narrative. His holiness is not a burden, but a thing of beauty. It's not joy deadening, but it's jaw dropping in wonder. It's not even hope crushing we're going to learn today. It's hope creating. Only one other time in the book of 1 John does, God, does John say God is something. God is light in chapter 1. Chapter 4, God is love. And the revelation of that love is in this. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God. We didn't take that first step toward him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. His light and his love are not competing realities in his heart, church. There's no tug of war happening in the heart of God. He is light and he is love simultaneously and in complete agreement with one another. His light is laced with love. His love is laced with light. Something about God's holiness just moved from like the dentist chair, you know, when that light comes in your eyes and you want to just look away to, to the dawn, to the warmth and embrace of a new morning when God's mercies are new and the warmth of the sunlight's just invading the darkness. Something in his holiness just turned from cold, exacting exposure to something that just stuns us and we want to draw near to it. His holy love just became so unspeakably endearing and warm. He is morally pure without darkness. Do you know what that means? It means he is the one you've been waiting for. It means he's better than you've ever imagined, and he will be when you meet him. So are you alert to these realities? Are you walking in the light? God is light. Walking in the light is aware of his perfections and purity. The third reality that defines the life in the light is the greatness of God's provision in Jesus. The greatness of God's provision in Jesus. Just think for a minute with me. We just learned that the light of God is his moral purity. And so to walk in the light, the assumption we make is we must also be morally pure. But wait a minute. You might be in for a surprise in this text. Look back in 1.6. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Sorry, that was 1-7. 
all sin, not some sin. See that word blood? That's, that's about the cross. That means this light of God. Yes, it pierces and exposes our filth before him. But this light purifies and provides everything needed to be in his presence. This light just became piercingly, where it was white maybe in your mind, it is laced with red. It's filtered through the blood of Jesus and provides the cleansing we need to be in his holy presence. This is the sentence you might want to walk right down. Walking in the light isn't perfect performance on our part. Walking in the light isn't perfect performance on our part. It's perfect provision on his part. Walking in the light isn't perfect performance on our part. It's perfect provision on his part. 2-2, look at it with me, church. John can't get over it. He's going to double up on the pronouns just so you realize the, the, the preciousness of this. He himself, not just once, not he is the atoning sacrifice. He himself, this one, this Jesus, who's, who's God's own son, whose blood is purifying us in his presence, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He himself, the blood of Jesus, his son. His holy love has issued forth an unparalleled expression of sacrifice. The righteous one who knew no sin was condemned so that we could be accepted before God. He bore the full weight of the penalty due us before his father. That's what that phrase means, atoning sacrifice. This is what this means, church. God forgives sinners like you and me on the basis of Jesus' righteous life. His atoning death, his sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection. Jesus, 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 Jesus absorbed the full weight of the punishment we deserve so that we could be in God's presence with full confidence. It's not just for believers here, but it's for believers all over the world. God is light and love, and that's, this is what this means. We are fully exposed and fully embraced by God in Jesus Christ. God wouldn't have it any other way. Living in the light means living in the light of God's revelation at the cross. The perfection of that sufficiency for us. The Christian life has been illustrated by this diagram by two authors in a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. It's actually a small group study if you wanted to do it sometimes. It's really a good study. When God meets you and awakens you on your journey through life, you've been in the dark, and it's like you're in a dark dungeon. And, and just like the old hymn says, light floods. And all of a sudden you realize you're a sinner and he's a great savior. And you put your hope in Jesus. And the cross is what bridges the divide between you and God. But what happens in the Christian life as we keep going, look at this diagram. As time enters and then God intervenes in our story, conversion happens and we're opened up to this reality of who he is and who we are. And the cross is sufficient to meet that need from day one until the end. But what happens in the Christian life is that God's glory keeps on getting more and more majestic. His holiness keeps on getting more and more pure and, and precious. He keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we keep getting at the same time smaller and smaller and smaller. Because if, if you're a new believer in this room, there are dimensions to your sin that you have yet to explore. John Newton said, hey, he wrote three pages to this brother, a letter about how he was struggling with sin. And he's like, man, I could go on and on. There's a whole volume yet to be explored. 
That's what happens. We have this growing sense of our inadequacy, this growing awareness of God's holiness. But at the same time, the life in the light sees the bridge, sees the gap closed by the sufficiency and perfection of Jesus. That's the life of a Christian. God gets bigger, we get smaller, and like Tozer said, Christ becomes unspeakably dear. Walking in the light is a lively sense of the grandeur of God, the gravity of our sin, and the greatness of his provision to close that gap. So that, what this means is that every step of the Christian life is just like the first one. You acknowledge your sin, you acknowledge he's perfect, you're a sinner, he's perfect, and there's perfect provision found in Jesus. So those three defining realities are what shape the life in the light. But let's look at the three dynamics that result from walking in the light. And this is why I don't see 2-2 as, as referring to Jesus paying for the sins of the whole world, but every believer in the whole world. Because Jesus' blood in this passage is effective to bring us into the light. It effectively cleanses us, and so it transfers us from darkness to light. But there's still darkness in the world, and so that means Jesus didn't die in the same way for every single individual on the planet. He brought us into the light by his effectual blood. So let's look at the dynamics that result from his effectual cleansing blood. The first dynamic that results among us is genuine community. Genuine community. Look at 1-7 again. So he talks about the life in the light. That as God is in the light, we should walk in the light. But instead of staying on the vertical dimension, where does he go? We have fellowship not with God, although that's true, but we have fellowship with, what's he say in verse 7? What do, you, what do you see? We have fellowship with one another. Genuine community is the fruit of the grace of the cross. John moves from the vertical to the horizontal to show us how this plays out in reality. A life in the light is a life tethered to other brothers and sisters. Real community with other believers. The darkness is actually a lonely life because you've got to keep people at arm's length to keep up the facade of who you are. The other night in our small group, we, we have a small group with Andrew Fanning and over in Chelsea, and we eat pancakes and eggs every Sunday night. Um, and the guys were over, and we were finishing our meal, and we were just talking about our weeks. We had had a tough weekend in the Bugner household. So we have had a year-long struggle with a basketball goal that is about to win. And a couple Fridays ago, I was backing up. It's one of those portable goals. I was backing up, and I clipped the corner of the base. So what that means is all the water came gushing out. And uh, once again, we're recycling through this whole thing. This has been a great occasion for marital harmony, let me just tell you. Um, so there we are on Sunday. That happened Friday morning, Sunday night, and my turn is up. Man, how are you? So I explained the whole saga, explained how Beck and I are kind of at odds. It's been a tough weekend. And there, Andrew's like, hey, man, where are you now, though? Like, where, how, how, how close are you now? And so I just said, man, I'm just trying to get out a good apology at this point. <laughs> and Sean and Andrew did exactly that. They just started laughing. And the thing about it was, it wasn't the laugh of ridicule. It was the laugh of, yes. I get it. We're all, we all struggle to get a good apology out sometimes. We're just shared strugglers. Our only hope's in the blood of Jesus. And this creates a safe space for us to be vulnerable with one another. Think about it. If you've been completely exposed by God's light, completely embraced by Christ's cross, then we can press into those awkward spaces together. 
This is a place we don't need to hide. The grace of the cross forges genuine community. The blood of Jesus forges a bond between us. It's so easy in a big church like this to just come in and go out and check out and check the religious box. But I don't think that's the kind of community that Jesus' blood intends to cultivate among us. That's actually a recipe for a lot of darkness. Being fully exposed and fully embraced by God means we meaningfully connect with one another. That starts in membership, but it's ongoing in meaningful relationship. True friends, genuine community is the fruit of the cross. We have honesty to be real with one another and hope that we're not defined by that reality. Hope that we're defined by the cross and we do that together. The second cleansing dynamic that Jesus produces among us is honest confession. Honest confession. Look in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the cleansing of Jesus' blood that we just read about that results in genuine community now is fleshing out in a a lifestyle of confession. It yields a life of confession in verse 9. First church, do you feel the relief? Breathe a deep sigh of relief because walking in the light does not mean perfection, but a lifestyle of confession. It means we put down our defenses, we own up to our sins, and recognize the only remedy we have is in Jesus. As Jared Wilson says in his book on discipleship, The Imperfect Disciple, following Jesus is this pathway of re-following Jesus. Isn't that the rhythm of the Christian life? Every day you got to get up and re-follow Jesus. Every sin that happens, you re-follow Jesus, confess your sins, and keep clinging to the cross. And the if is really important to understand here. The if signifies a condition. So it's cleansing and forgiveness dependent on our confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to me clearly here. Is cleansing and forgiveness dependent on our confession? For John, yes. If we confess, we are forgiven and cleansed. But look at the end of verse 7 again. It's actually the blood of Jesus that was already at work cleansing us from all sin. So is it our confession that yields the result of cleansing or Jesus' blood that yields the result of cleansing? It's both. This is how it works. Jesus' blood provides the cleansing by prompting confession. Jesus' blood provides the cleansing by prompting confession. Jesus' blood works through means. But, church, don't shift your hope to, the, to, the, to your confession, to the means. A condition is not the same as the source. The blood of Jesus is the source. That's the anchor of our hope. But the avenue through which cleansing comes is through confession of our sins. Confession is the means, but don't shift your hope to your confession. And we can really be confused about confession, just like uh, that conversation between a dad and a son was earlier. Confession is not grief over getting caught. It's not confession of our temptations, because if we did that, you wouldn't, if, if I did that this morning, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. Because we're tempted in a variety of ways, right? But we confess our sins to one another. Confession isn't disappointment at sin's consequences. It's outright ownership of wrong with no excuses given. There's no buts. We are professional butt givers. 
That sounds really weird, but it's true. Just as we saw in verse 7, there there are vertical and horizontal dimensions to this confession that I think John wants us to grasp. First, yes, we should confess our sins to who? To God. But also consider confessing your sins to one another, to a trusted brother or sister. And watch how you put a stranglehold on that desire to sin. And if you sin against someone, it's clear in the Bible that you have to confess to that person and to God in order to make that relationship right between you. And a few notes on confession. One, own it. If the shoe fits, wear it, lace it up, and and just own it completely. No buts. And if you're afraid to own it completely, I would just encourage you to to look to the cross. The cross is meant to overcome your fear of exposure. You've already been exposed by the very one whose opinion ultimately matters. So whoever's opinion that you're afraid of, don't worry about it. (laughs) Own it. The cross is there to end your fear of exposure. Secondly, after you put on those shoes... Put on the other person's shoes. And I would first encourage you to put on God's shoes. Think about what that sin, however little it is in your mind, how, what it cost him to forgive you of that sin. Think of that sin from his perspective. Think of the grief you caused his heart. Think of the ache of a father who watched his son go down a path he didn't design for him. And empathize with God first. Then, if you have sinned against someone else, I really think you need to empathize with them. Put on their shoes and see how this is going to be received, how it's going to hurt. And empathize with them so that you can appropriately apologize with the appropriate weight that your sin has brought into that relationship. Thirdly, I would say confess the sins behind the sin. Notice 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins. Not sin in some vague sense like I'm a sinner. Sins, particular sins. We need to be specific. But I would just encourage you not to just stay on the surface. Why did you do that action? Whatever action you committed is driven by some desire at its root. And if your confession stays at the surface sin, you won't get down to the functional idol that's controlling your heart and confess that as well. And grace won't flow with its cleansing power into those areas. The heart idol that drove your behavior needs to be owned and identified. So you kick your brother. Why? Because I put winning over him and over God. That's the functional idol that was controlling that son's heart. And if you're considering confessing today to someone around you that you've hurt and maybe they don't know it yet, tread carefully, I would just say, and write out your confession. The initial conversation of how that goes can either complicate forgiveness or commend it. So if you find yourself on the receiving end of that conversation today, and I, I hope in one sense it's not today, but I hope in another sense it is today, that we would apply ourselves with renewed vigor to the light. But if you're on the receiving blow, I would just encourage you, Christ knows that blow. It's going to hurt, and it's okay to be hurt. Love doesn't rejoice at unrighteousness, but ask yourself in your pain, would you rather that sin fester in the dark or be exposed by God's cleansing light? The safest place for your relationship actually might be the shakiest at first. It's okay to be hurt, but cling to the cross. Hang on to the cross and hang on to one another. One other thing, I think we can fall off the end of the spectrum here. And and a a culture of suspicion is kind of 
uh, our default mold, mode. Like if we don't hear our brothers and sisters confessing their sins to one another, then we start wondering, oh man, I wonder if they're really in the dark or what's going on with them. And I want to just encourage you, our focus needs to be on becoming safe people where the blood of Jesus gives us that forbearance and that love and that gentleness where people would be invited into the light of where we're walking and we would enjoy fellowship together. It's not intended to create suspicion, but safety. So right now in the Bugner household, we're trying to train our puppy to stop doing this one deed of darkness. And when we don't play with him, he goes to our little nook where our shoes are and he grabs a shoe and runs away with it and starts chewing on it. And it's driving us crazy. So we, we initially would chase after him, and then we started realizing he just loved it. So he would get a shoe then, and he would, if we didn't notice, he would kind of prance by us and let it graze our leg, and then he'd look up at us, and then he'd dart away because he wants to be chased. It's a game in his head. So we're, we're trying to change the narrative in that little puppy's head. So we looked up another tactic online. Now instead of chasing him, we call him for a treat. So I don't recommend this for parenting purposes, but only for puppies. So he, he can't chew a shoe and a treat at the same time. So you can kind of see this crisis in his faith, like not his faith, but in his life. You know, he turns his head to the side like, ooh, treat or shoe. And he goes for the treat. And so we get our shoe back. But the goal is not a fat puppy. The goal is not an endless supply of treats. The goal is for him to stop chewing our shoes and bring them to us. So we will eventually call him with the promise of a treat. And he will come running. And then we'll get the shoe, but he won't get the treat. And I feel bad. See, that's how I feel every time. I feel bad every time. It's a setup. It's got darkness laced through it. He's about to be really disappointed. He's being duped, and he has no clue. Listen to these words, church. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. He isn't planning on rescinding his provision, church. He isn't keeping his fingers crossed behind his back. Just waiting to pull the rug out from underneath us. He is faithful and righteous to forgive. He has bound himself by a covenant obligation to you in such a way that you are safe. Even though you are fully exposed. Exposed and embraced. That's our story justice that demanded our condemnation because he was condemned on our place now demands our acceptance you are not being duped by heaven in this path toward forgiveness and a lifestyle of continual confession and repentance will keep the cross unspeakably dear to us but the tendency is that we subvert the process now how do we do this remember the diagram earlier this is what sometimes happens that clouds our vision of how unspeakably dear the cross is. So we start out that path and we see that the cross is big at first, but then we start minimizing the, the effect of sin and trying to maximize our resume before God. And so we start pretending that we're better than we actually are. And so the cross, if it doesn't grow in proportion through a lifestyle of, of confession and repentance, we replace that gap that we fill with pretending and performing. So we will fill in these gaps by either minimizing sin or pretending we are better than we are or performing to try to cover our tracks. And that life trends toward the darkness. Confession keeps the channels of grace open. 
And the cross grows in proportion as we keep clinging to it, keep clinging to it, keep clinging to it over and over and over again. And I would just encourage you, if you've been pretending and trying to perform your way out of the mess you're making of your own life, I would just encourage you to start fresh today. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us. Stop pretending. You're going to wear yourself out. Stop performing. My dad used to say that the, the best way, the easiest way to live is to always tell the truth the first time. Because then you don't have to keep up with the narrative that you've been spinning. So tell the truth the first time. Come clean today because there's cleansing in the light through the blood of Jesus. And the third, everybody take a deep breath. Whew, a lot of information here. Uh, the third cleansing dynamic that's unleashed by the light and through the blood of Jesus is gutsy guilt. And I got that from John Piper. I think it's so helpful. Look into one. My little children. I am gutsy guilt, if you didn't get that outline. Look into one. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now look at that second part of verse 1. If anyone does sin, I mean, aren't we hanging on by a thread right now? That's me, you know, rage, if I had a show of hands. If anyone does sin, okay, John, you got me. This is an important moment because I've sinned. Raise it up. I, we're guilty. Okay, I need something next. What do we have? We have an advocate with the Father. He came here. That's what we learned in the first few verses and now, where is he? He's up there before the Father. And what's his role? To be our defender. To be our helper. Don't pretend it wasn't that bad. Don't punish yourself out of it. Don't try to perform to cover it up. Put down your inner defenses. Your defender is in heaven. If you've just sinned, confess it. Cling to Jesus and get up, Christian. Gutsy guilt enables us to have the guts to get up, even though we're guilty, because we have a defender and a helper in heaven. You aren't defined by your last moment of sin, dear Christian. Jesus' righteousness defines you. It's the resilient buoyancy in our lives. It provides that we sink and we come back up. We sink and we come back up. It's the guts to get back up. If you... If that, you know that when your Apple computer gets too overloaded and that pinwheel starts, you know, that's what's happening in a relationship with God when we give ourselves to sin. But how long that keeps going is it problematic for us. We need to apply the cross at that moment and get back up. Because if, if we end up settling in that moment and self-pity or groveling or self-punishment even settles in, that's just as much a sign of pride than the initial sin. Defeat at the existence of sin is just as much a denial of the efficacy of Jesus' atonement than the first wayward thought into disobedience. A true Christian sides against himself when he sins, just like Dever said earlier, because he knows someone with a more definitive word has sided for him in heaven. Don't listen to the devil's lies. Get up, Christian. Press on. Defy the devil. Defy even your last sin. No more groveling and self-pity. Get up, Christian. With guilty hands, I would encourage you, cling to Jesus in heaven as your only hope. In this text, thankfully, I didn't even have to create a Sobrook Hills moment. <laughs> Sobrook Hills, 2-1. Look how John draws us in. My dear little children. 
sober kills. My, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. The whole purpose of this knowledge of whether we're in the light or in the dark and these dynamics that are at work in the light is so that we would stop sinning. We have comfort from God in our sin, but that comfort never leads to a comfortableness with sin. Very important. You have comfort in your sin in order to never make you comfortable in sinning. That's it. The exposure of this text, the embrace of this text, forge a life of resolve to stop sinning. So say no, church, today. Say no tomorrow. Say no the next day and keep saying no. And when you fall, get up. And the gutsy guilt, the confidence that you have a defender in heaven.